God's good, isn't he? He is the giver of every good gift. Acts chapter 8 and verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake. We go back a little bit earlier in Acts 7. We'll see that Philip was a part of this group of young evangelists that they had chosen that were men of good report. And um, they were being used of God. Of course, we know Stephen was part of that group, was martyred for his faith. And if we go back to chapter 6, we'll see that it was done for the purpose of helping the apostles to deal with the growth of that church in Jerusalem and beyond. Philip goes to the city of Samaria, and he's having a tremendous revival. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits. This is part of an end time revival, folks. Unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But... But there was a certain man named Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. And when Simon saw that through laying on the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power. And on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. I'd like to speak tonight on this subject, the Simon Syndrome, the curse of a consumer-based gospel. The Simon Syndrome, the curse of a consumer-based gospel gospel. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful to be in your house tonight. So thankful for your presence and your spirit. What a great God you are, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to sit in heavenly places. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather together under the banner of your great name. We are so thankful for you, Lord. We pray that you would anoint our hearts and minds to receive your word and let us be changed in Jesus name. Everybody said, amen. You may be seated and thank you for standing. At first glance, when you uh, read this story, it would appear that uh, this Simon was 
uh, perhaps a man that was hungry for the Lord, perhaps even willing to uh, change his ways. There was this tremendous revival going on in Samaria. And you've got to remember that Samaria was a place where the, the Orthodox Jews especially would not even go. They, the Samaritans were people that were made up of Jew and Gentile, and the Jews didn't see them as being the pure Jewish race, and so they wouldn't even walk in the city limits. They'd go way around. Jesus, of course, we know went right into Samaria, right down to the town center, right down to the well, sat there and had that great conversation with that lady. There was this uh, revival that was going on in the city of Samaria. Philip, this evangelist from Jerusalem, goes right down into Samaria. And, of course, as we read in the text, tremendous things were happening. People were being healed, and, and people were being delivered from all of these uh, spirits and and all this that had happened because of this sorcery. And so the very chief sorcerer, Simon, the one who had been so instrumental in putting this this city, as it were, under this uh, under this curse, uh, this uh, this heavy weight, as it were, of of these unclean and evil spirits. He he even had to acknowledge that there was a power that was greater than the power that he had. Oh, my friend, I want to remind you today that you serve the great and the mighty God. There is no power greater. There is no power greater than the power of God Almighty and the anointing of the Holy Ghost. There is no spirit of infirmity. There is no spirit of divination. There is no spirit of unclean spirits that can cause you to put on that yoke that you cannot be free. But when a man or a woman will cry out and say, God, I acknowledge that you have all power and all authority in heaven above and in earth beneath. Ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing that can stop the mighty God. Hallelujah. He can deliver from the utmost. He can deliver to the utmost. It doesn't matter where you're from, what your background is. Our God is able... And even people that may not know the power of God, they have to recognize uh, whenever you've been healed, when you've been delivered, when you've been set free. uh, Oh, my friend, there's nothing, hallelujah, that can compare to that. When you acknowledge the fact that God has not just delivered you from sin, but literally taken away your desire from sin. Only God, only, only God. I was talking to uh, Dick Sias the other day when we received word that his brother Ken had passed away in Tennessee, and Brother Dick Saez started reminiscing about the past 38 years and started telling me about how whenever he and Ken first entered into a Bible study with my father 38 years ago and how that, that Ken had tried to uh, get delivered from cigarettes and from alcohol and they would they would do good for a few weeks, but then they'd always go back to it and they'd always go back to it. But he said something was different this time and Bishop started teaching to us the Word of God, and we came to a Pentecostal service, and, and we felt the power of God, and we began to pray and ask God to deliver us. Uh, and he said, you know, Pastor, he said the thing that was different was we never had the desire for it anymore. We never had the desire for it anymore. He said, I'm so thankful that 38 years ago God delivered. He said, and the thing that I, I know is that Ken is with the Lord because for 38 years he had the freedom to be able to lift his hands and his voice and say, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Oh, I want to remind somebody tonight, he's greater than nicotine. He's greater than alcohol. He's greater than drugs. He's greater than immorality. Our God is greater. 
The Bible said the devil's fear and tremble because they know there's one God and his name is Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, every knee has to bow. And every tongue has to confess. But what is interesting is, though it would appear that Simon had this desire for the things of God, it would appear that he wanted to also be saved and that this would be sort of the cherry on the top of this revival, so to speak, and in that it would be the culmination of a mighty move of God that even the head sorcerer would be converted. But what he was looking for is not the thing that draws God to humanity. He saw salvation as the power of God. And though that in, in and of itself may, be, may seem to be somewhat innocent, uh, Peter and John, when they came down from Jerusalem, because they came down with the understanding that this revival was spreading so rapid and it was so powerful. They laid their hands on them and they were baptized and received the Holy Ghost. There was this um, authentication, as it were, of these uh, apostles, these disciples coming down. And Peter recognized right away that this Simon uh, was uh, even clever in the way that he was approaching uh, God through this this young man, Philip's ministry. He recognized that it was the power of God. But that what is interesting is that Simon tried to come to God as a mutual agreement. Simon's approach to God was transactional in nature. And, and that, that may seem somewhat innocuous, but there's a, a portion of the text that sort of encapsulates Simon's dilemma. Peter says, your heart is not right in the sight of God. And one of the things that you see in Simon's request is the self-centered nature of the offer. Notice what he says in verse 19. Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. It was not a desire to receive the Holy Ghost, but rather a desire to give the Holy Ghost. It was void of empty repentance. It was, it was nothing contrite or submissive about uh, his request. Ladies and gentlemen, when you come to God, whether it is for the gift of the Holy Ghost or for a healing or for anything else, you have to approach God with a need. I need you, Lord. You can't come to God with an attitude that, boy, I tell you, Lord, if you get me, boy, you're really going to get somebody. Boy, I can do a lot of good for the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you come to the Lord, you can't come to the Lord offering God some kind of a bargain. You've got to come to the Lord and say, God, if I don't have you, I'm not going to make it. I'm desperate for you, oh God. I see a legal parallel if you'll just... Tolerate me making this comparison for a moment. If you want to have standing in a case or audience with the court, you have to be injured in some way. You have to have a need. You can't request for the court to give you some equitable remedy so you can help your cousin Vinny, who really is the one who needs help. That just doesn't work. It doesn't work that way in a court of law. And the same is true with God. You can't approach God 
as a proxy for someone else's salvation. As much as I would like to be able to say, Lord, I, I, I need you to save this person, that person, this person, and that person would be saved regardless of what they did or did not do. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing if we could do that? But it doesn't work that way. Everybody, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl has to come to God for themselves. You have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You can't give salvation to your children. You can't give salvation to your spouse. You can't give salvation to your friends. Every single individual has to come before God and truly repent and say, I need you, God. You can't request the gifts and callings of God until you've had a relationship with him. That would be like somebody requesting your inheritance without the relationship. And sometimes I think we, we look at having a relationship with God as some sort of a transactional deal. Like we would go to Walmart and we would buy some items for the house. And we think that somehow we come to God in and, and some sort of a consumer-based purchasing type agreement. Oh, no, my friend. You've got to come to God with repentance. You've got to say, Lord, I am lost and undone. And if you don't save me, I'm not going to make it. That's what God is drawn to. It doesn't matter what your background is. What matters is how you approach God. And you can't approach God from a transactional standpoint. You've got to approach God from a submissive standpoint. And say, oh, God, forgive me. And I want to go one step further. I believe we've got to get back to old time forgiveness. And, and asking God to, to forgive us of sins and, and not just saying, Lord, forgive me to go through the motion so that everybody will accept us again. No, my friend, you got to find a place to bury your face in the carpet and say, God, I got to have help. You got to be like David, renewing me a right spirit and a clean heart, oh God. Oh, my friend, it's humility that will draw us close to God. I, I remember I, I've shared this with you before, but it comes into my mind at this particular moment. When we were in Madagascar and, and there was such a tremendous move of God, there were several thousand people and, and oh, I don't know how many people, three or four thousand getting the Holy Ghost and, and the worship that would go on for hours and hours and hours. And, and the people were so organized and they were just amazing. And I, I turned to Brother Jerry Richardson, who's been the missionary there for many, many years. He's retired now, actually pastoring up in Tennessee. But I said, Brother Richardson, it's an amazing thing what you have done in organizing this revival. And he said, you know, Brother David, he said, as long as God keeps getting the credit for it, he'll keep blessing it. But he said, if we ever stop and start taking credit for it, he said, it'll stop in a moment. I said, oh, Lord, help me to not ever, re don't, don't help me, help me, Lord, not ever forget it. I don't ever want to forget that. That God, you're the one that does it. Hallelujah. Where would we be without the Lord? Hallelujah. Oh, my friend, you remember when you first came to the Lord? You didn't come with any kind of a bargaining arrangement. You didn't come with some kind of goods and services to trade. You just came and threw yourself on the horns of the altar. On the mercy of God. Oh, my friend, that's the way we got to live every day. Every day you got to get up and say, the Lord is good. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. You've been so good to me, Lord. I don't deserve all the blessings. I don't deserve to sit in heavenly places. I don't deserve to be in your house. But here we are. And the Lord is here. And the Lord has lifted us up. Mm. Can't be a transactional relationship. I had a friend one time that said that he wanted to come here and work in the church, be a part of our staff. So I offered him a job. 
I'd known him for a long time. I thought I knew him. And uh, so we were coming to an agreement. He said, I want you to take out a million-dollar policy on your life and make me the beneficiary. And I said, why would you want that? And he said, well, I don't want there to arise and use the biblical. It's amazing how people can use Bible for their own purposes. He said, I don't want there to be later on a king that would arise that knew not Joseph, referring to Egypt and Pharaoh and all. He said, later on, somebody else may be pastor, and I don't I want to make sure that my family is provided for. I said, I withdraw my offer. I withdraw my offer because you're not my wife and you're not my child. You don't get the inheritance without the relationship. If something happens to me, the next pastor will take care of you. Oh, you'll go get another job. There's a novel idea. But I don't want you to have a million reasons for me to be dead. (laughs) This is what Simon was trying to do. And if we're not careful, we'll approach God like he's some kind of sugar daddy looking for how we can get a deal out of it. I want my friend, you can't come to God that way. You, you can't make up every kind of security arrangement so that you're always going to be taken care of. This is a walk of faith. You get up every day, you put your pants on like everybody else, and you say, this is the day that the Lord has made. He's blessed me. He's given me food to eat. I've got shelter. He's given us a family. I'm going to bless the Lord. Lord, oh my soul. Jesus said, here's what you get. A cross. Yeah, you get a cross. Hated for my name's sake. Despised, rejected. I've even been under conviction about teaching that we should give because God will give back to us more than he gives, than we give to him. I've been convicted even about that. And I know that's biblical, but that shouldn't be the motivation for why we give. That's a consumer-based motivation. If I give, if I pay my tithes, then God's going to bless me. That's driven by our our own best interest. I, I think that's a selfish approach to God. The sacrifice that I read about in Scripture was not consumer driven, it's obedience driven. We give because the Bible instructs us to give. It's not consumer-based, it's contrite-based. Repentance has to be selling out. It can't be a purchase. It's not a mutual arrangement where you shake hands with the Creator. You're not on the same playing field as the Creator. Oh, He is the mighty God in Christ. He is the everlasting Father. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. But He said, guess what? I'll make you a son of God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they shall become the sons of God. For we become joint heirs with Him. When you have that relationship. That's where the inheritance comes from. And if our approach to God is consumer-based then how do we handle loss? How do we handle heartache? How do we handle life when it doesn't go the way that we have it all planned? But wait a second, God. I've been faithful. I thought if I did all of these things, this would be the end result. But guess what? Sometimes there's a lot of curbs in the road in this journey called life. 
And if we're walking with God only because of some sort of transactional-based gospel, we'll not be able to handle the disappointments because it'll feel like a breach of contract. Oh, my friend, God doesn't owe us anything. I said God doesn't owe us anything. Every day is a gift. Every day when you wake up and you can breathe, oh, you just got to say, Lord, I give you thanks for another day. I remember as a boy hearing that album back in the old days, we used to have these albums that we would play. I got to explain this to the young people. They were like a disc. They were like vinyl. And you'd put them down on this big box looking thing. And there was a little thing that came over. It had a needle on the end of it. And you dropped it down in the, in the little vinyl disc. It had grooves in it. And the needle rode up and down and on the... This almost sounds antiquated now, doesn't it? And it played the sounds and it went out. And Thomas Edison invented this thing called the phonograph. And we used to play records. They're called, they were called records. And then they would have a big disc would have like maybe 10 songs on it. The little ones, the 45s, they would only have maybe one song on either side. I remember as a kid getting this disc of this group called the Mighty Clouds of Joy. I got a witness from anybody that remember the Mighty Clouds of Joy. Woo, man, they'd all sing. And I can remember, I, I, it just the song just got embedded in my mind. And sometimes I'll sing it when I'm in the shower. And my kids can't make fun of me and there's nobody around. And I can just sing and it's just me and God and it sounds beautiful to Him. <laughs> and I don't even know the song. I don't even know all the words. But I just remember the first line. He's, it goes like, well, I woke up early this morning. My heart was beating right on time. I said, Lord, I truly thank you for opening up these eyes of mine. Then after that, my memory gets a little blurry. <laughs> Something about a bird and a window and singing. And... But that's all I need is that first part. Well, I woke up early this morning. Boy, if you get up and uh, your heart is beating right on time, you ought to give God the praise. Before you go to your iPhone, before you check your email, you ought to say, thank you, Lord, for opening up these eyes of mine. I thank you, Lord, I got another day to rejoice. I thank you, Lord, I got another day to say, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, you've been good to me, God. I don't deserve it, but God, you're a good God, you're a good God. Because if you realize every day is just God's mercy to you, even when you have loss, when you have disappointment, it won't derail you. You won't question the faithfulness of God. In Acts 8, Philip goes to Samaria and has a great revival. And the Bible says that there is great joy in the city. Simon is a sorcerer. He sees that something supernatural is going on. He doesn't understand it, but he knows it's real. And he wants to purchase it. The secret to why Samaria had great joy is in the fifth verse. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. That's where the joy came from. He gave them something. Simon was trying to purchase something. Philip gave them Jesus. 
Woo, hallelujah. Ladies and gentlemen, when you give Jesus, the greatest thing you can do is to give Jesus to your friends. Give Jesus to your coworkers. Give Jesus to your family members. Give Jesus every time you can, every way you can, everywhere that you can. Give them Jesus. You say, how do we give them Jesus? You give them Jesus by giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's nothing that brings joy like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philip gave them hope. Philip gave them Jesus. Simon wanted authority. The Simon syndrome says, I will have a great life if I get a lot of great stuff. A great job, a great relationship, a great car. But the Bible says that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Yes, there is joy in getting but there is greater joy in giving. Peter said, Simon, I perceive that you're in the gall of bitterness. Because if all you do is want, you will battle bitterness. But if all you do is give, you're going to live a life of joy. Oh, yes. You see, the Simon syndrome will set you up to fail because it's goods and services. It's transactional based and it's void of peace and joy. But Paul put it this way. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. That's transactional based. He said it's not meat and drink. It is righteousness and peace and joy. Oh, my friend, you can't purchase righteousness and peace and joy. You can't make some kind of an agreement with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and you get righteousness, peace and joy. It is just a gift. It's like grace. It's the unmerited favor of God. Hallelujah. But if you've ever had it, you know what it is to have joy in the midnight hour, even though you may be battling sickness or you may be battling a family crisis. Oh, if you've got the joy of the the Lord. It is your strength. It is your hope. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Joy is giving to God and to others and not expecting anything in return. I believe that's why our church enjoys going to third world countries and building churches and orphanages and medical clinics and disaster relief, you name it. This is why people volunteer their time for our hands for healing ministry. Some of the places that we have gone and others that are being planned for next year are not always the safest place to go. Some of them are even dangerous. But every time we announce a trip, there's a lot of people that sign up. People pay their own way, their own expenses. They take all valuable time from work. Why? Because if you ever go one time, you're hooked. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why you're hooked. Here's why you're hooked. Because there's no kind of joy like the joy of giving Jesus given the gospel we receive back so much more than we give we go to help them to build a church or to assist them financially but they always end up giving us back more than we do to them because they give to us in ways that are not easy to measure and they're hard to describe all i can tell you is that it's joy unspeakable and full of glory 
And I feel like that God is calling the church to come up to a higher level. Don't get trapped with the Simon Syndrome. Don't get trapped in a consumer-based gospel. Come on, come on up a little bit higher and realize it's joy unspeakable and full of glory. When you live by faith and you say, who can I bless today? Who can I give the gospel to? When you begin to serve God that way, you're going to find out what real joy is. It's not based on all the comforts of life. It's not based on all the blessings of life. What it's based on is that every day you've got a mindset that God has been good and you're going to bless the Lord while you've got breath in your lungs. You're going to say great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and nobody can steal that joy from you. Mm, Here's another part of the Simon syndrome. Receiving affects you individually, but giving is contagious. Notice the contrast. Peter says Simon's in the gall of bitterness. But yet Acts 8 says the city had great joy. Simon was alone in his quest. And the Bible said that he was a certain man. But he was alone in his bid for the power of God. But yet the city had great joy. Notice the contrast. One is individual. The other is many. Oh, my friend, there's something about the joy of the Lord that's contagious. You can't keep it to yourself. It flows out and above and over. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says the city had great joy. Have you ever experienced that? That joy, maybe you were discouraged and maybe you didn't even want to come to church, but you did anyhow. And oh, when you got there and they started singing the songs of Zion. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Oh, you're so glad you get in the company of others. And joy is contagious. There was great joy in the city. There was great joy in the church. Oh, you may have had something go wrong this week on your job, but you got in the house of God and somebody started to sing next to you. And somebody else started getting down and waving a handkerchief in the altar area. And somebody began to shout out and say, Lord, you're a good God. And before long, you couldn't stay in that desperate place any longer. You couldn't stay isolated in your own concerns and fears and disappointments. You had to just begin to join in And worship God also. Why? Because great joy is contagious. Hallelujah. That's why we need one another. That's why we got to come together in 2021. Because the Bible said that the city came together in unity. And when they did, that's when they had great joy. Oh, I feel like God is wanting to give us a revival of joy. I know it's been a tough time, but God is wanting to give us a revival of joy. Let everything that hath breath praise ye the Lord. But the only way you're going to get great joy is you've got to get beyond yourself. And you've got to just come and let it be an offering, a sacrifice unto the Lord. I'm here to praise Him. I'm here to bless the Lord. I'm not here for what God can do for me. I'm not here for what God can give me. I'm here to say, Lord, You're a good God. Oh, oh, I want to find a brother or a sister or somebody that I can link hands with and say, I'm not going to be trapped by the Simon Syndrome. I'm going to get the gospel that Philip was preaching. I want the joy of the Lord. I want it in my home. I want it in my life. I want it in my spirit. I want it in all that I do. I don't know if Simon 
the sorcerer was ever saved, we don't hear any more about him. I don't think that he was because even at the end of the chapter, after he is rebuked by Peter, Peter tells him specifically that you need to pray to the Lord. He says to Peter, pray ye to the Lord for me. No, Simon. You pray to the Lord. Even after all of that, Simon says to Peter, pray ye to the Lord for me. I have a lawyer friend in this city that he always says, pray for me, preacher. And I used to say, I will and I do. But after studying this, I've decided I'm going to change my answer. And I'm going to say, you need to touch God yourself. You've got to know Him yourself. It's not enough to just say, pray for me, brother. Pray for me, sister. Yes, we will. But you've got to get a hold of God yourself. Oh, young person, you've got to bow the knee. You've got to get a hold of God. You've got to say, Lord, I can't be saved by proxy through my parents or my grandparents' salvation. I've got to know God for myself. You've got to get on your hands and knees. And you've got to take ownership of your own relationship with God. You've got to be desperate for Him. It's not going to come by a spouse. It's not going to come by a friend. It's not going to come by a family member. You've got to pray. You've got to pray. Perhaps it's not fair to label this as the Simon Syndrome. Because though we don't know what happened to Simon the Sorcerer, I truly do believe that Simon the Tanner and Simon the Leper were saved. And I certainly believe that Simon Peter was saved. Simon the Tanner, who's he? We read about him in Acts 10. He opens his house for the man of God to come and stay, and it appears that he has a nice house. It's down there on, by the seaside, the Bible says, in Joppa. Peter would go there to sort of get a little rest and relaxation, would go up to the top floor and sort of sun himself and wait for lunch. But it's there whenever the Lord appears to him in a vision. And he sees all these unclean animals in a net. And the Lord says, rise, Peter, slay and eat. Peter, oh, not so, Lord, for nothing unclean hath ever entered my mouth. The voice comes from heaven. But God hath cleansed that call not thou come. About that time, there's a knock at the door. Two servants are coming from Cornelius' house. Simon the Tanner. We don't know much about you, Simon the Tanner. But I'm so glad that you opened up your house I'm so glad that you were there and you had an open house so that Simon Peter could be there and get a revelation that the Lord was going to save the Gentiles and that anybody could be saved regardless of where they were from, regardless of what their nationality was. Simon the Tanner, I don't know about you any more than the fact that you opened up your house, but oh my friend, when you open up your house, when you open up your heart, when you say, I'm going to open up my heart to the things of God, to the people of God, to the Word of God, I've come to tell you, there's a blessing, there's a residual blessing that takes place when a man or a woman says, Lord, everything I have, 
have, I give it unto you, Lord. And God gives a revelation. When Simon the leper opens up his house to the Lord, it's in his house that we read about special acts of worship like Mary washing the feet of Jesus. Yes, Simon, the sorcerer closed his heart, but the other Simons opened up their heart. And when they did, salvation spread and worship grew and the gospel was preached. It was there where Mary begins to wash the Lord's feet. It was there where we get a revelation of the fact that when you worship God, that there is a relationship that takes place through worship. And it doesn't matter even if it's unorthodox. But God said, don't stop her. Because when a man or a woman will worship God, there are walls that come down. And there are chains that are broken. That was Mary Magdalene, and many commentators believe that it was. Then it was the Mary Magdalene that had all of those spirits that she had dealt with from her past. But she found that when she worshipped God, those spirits couldn't come back and haunt her any longer. Simon the sorcerer was still trying to approach God like he did evil spirits on some sort of a transaction based. But that's not how you approach God. You approach God with unadulterated worship. Here I am to worship. Here I am to glorify you. So maybe it's not fair to call it the Simon syndrome. Maybe it's better to ask the rhetorical question, which Simon are you? Which Simon are you? Are we only in this for what we can get out of it? Or will we open up our heart and our home to the Lord? to the things of God and find joy, unspeakable joy in the process. Would you stand to your feet? I got that song in my mind and my heart today. Here I am to worship. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether worthy. While they're getting that ready right now, would you just lift up your hands all over this building? Would you lift up your voice unto God right now? Oh, you've been so good to us, Lord. You've been so good to us, Lord. Yes. Yes, Jesus. You don't owe us anything, Lord. We soul out, Lord. We don't come to purchase anything, Lord. We just come to sell out, Lord, to you.
Jesus. We exalt you, Lord.
so here 